0: Just a housekeeping issue. This is Dr. Ham's last week in Genesis. I know, I know. But he is so gracious every time I call him, I'm sure I can twist his <laughs> arm again. Maybe you'd want to continue Genesis later in February or March? We could? We'll talk about that. Okay, and Job? Okay. Okay, well, maybe we can come back and do that. But he's always been our friend, and and, uh, I'm so grateful that you moaned, because I'd love to invite him back. Next week, um, our associate pastor, Mike Wallace, will be starting a two-week study in preparation for Christmas, and he's going to look at the Nativity. He's going to compare the accounts in the Gospels. He's asking the question, who was at the Nativity? And he's got some insights there for us. If you would like, I did put a basket out. If you'd like to show your appreciation to Dr. Ham, I'll promise that I won't use the money for my personal Christmas shopping. <laughs> we always give a stipend to our speakers, and I'd be happy to make sure that he gets that. Let's open in prayer. Father, as we continue in this Lenten season and prepare to receive your gift, I was touched this morning as I Came early to work on the Panera Bread Project and saw the different loaves of bread. I saw that some of the bread was high and puffed up and other bread was flat. And it reminded me of this passage Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of the dough? Get rid of the old yeast that was you and a new batch without yeast as you really are for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast the yeast of malice and wickedness but with the bread without yeast the bread of sincerity and truth fathers we prepare in this lenten season to receive the gift let us remember the unpuffed up, the sinless, and enjoy the bread of sincerity and truth, which is your Son, Jesus Christ. And be with T.C. this morning as we hear more of the truth of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Uh, I I was looking ahead this week um, at at our chapter, chapter 3, and uh, there are several <coughs> points of contact between chapter 3 and the prophets, and Jesus, in fact. So uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to talk about those things. Before we get to those points of contact, I wanted to go back uh, to chapter 1. We talked about these words, um, really, that, that shapes chapter 1, uh, <coughs> the order that God desires in creation, the creation itself. The act of creation itself was, was an ordered act. Um, chapter one is structured in such rigid order to show that just by the literature itself that God's work was incredibly well ordered. Chapter two introduces us into um, the scene. is at the center of the stage at this point. Uh, and chapter three uh, then develops into what humanity does and how God reacts to that. But that thought occurred to me that that God reacts to it. Um, Sometimes my students ask me this um, and and this is a a legitimate question. So when God knows what what you and I would do anyway uh, what does God wait uh, to, to react to or respond to? And I said how else do you relate to another human being or another person? And now, there are two words I've, I've been using consistently, transcendence and imminence. So in the transcendence of God, you see God's order, God's power, God's sovereignty over creation, but in God's imminence, what we see is God's relationality, that this God, this transcendent God, wants to have a relationship with us, and that relationship has to be a give and take, otherwise it's not a relationship. If, it's, if we're merely puppets on a string, then it's not a relationship. So God responds to what we do, and then we in turn respond to what God does, and that's the only way you can actually relate to people. Um, so that's, that's the key word today for chapter 3 is relationality. We're gonna, we're gonna, uh, I know it's Christmas coming up and uh, the season of Advent. So <coughs> uh, we're going to talk about the curses and uh, the, t- the curses as it relates to our faith and especially uh, to Jesus Christ. But w- let's uh, see if we can make our way through the text again uh, and, and, and get to those passages. You remind me where we left off last time. <laughs> <laughs> verse 5, where we, were we, oh, we made it. Okay, so verse 5 is where we're starting let's let's uh go back a little bit then then uh, to the beginning of chapter three uh so the serpent was the the shrewdest or craftiest or the smartest of all the animals uh and and so this serpent comes to the woman and uh it's often phrased as a question um but it, it it's almost uh, an emphatic statement has god indeed said but it just begin, begins indeed god has god Really, no question there. Um, but so the, the serpent phrases this question Did God say, indeed, uh, that you shouldn't eat from any other tree? And, and she responds in a very matter of fact uh, to the serpent No, we can eat. Nothing emphatic about her statement. All of the emphasis g- that God placed on the command is removed. Uh, and, and then she says, We can eat from the tree or her fruit. But then the, from the tree in the mid, middle of the garden where God had said to not eat and to uh, not even touch, lest you die. And the serpent says um, to the woman, and this is uh, chapter verse 4, do you remember in, in the in the co- in the command that God pronounced to, to Adam, Adam uh, you may freely eat, you may eat and eat some more, that construction in Hebrew, that emphatic construction. Uh, and... But then if you eat of this thing, you will really die. You will surely die. That it's again, the same emphatic construction. That's the construction here. Um, you will really not die. For God knows. Uh, the day that you eat from it, your eyes will open, will be opened. And you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, I I can't recall if I've mentioned this last time, but my students don't don't like it sometimes when I challenge their reading of scripture, Uh, because we've read the same stories over and over, and so we have preconceived notions. And one of the things I say to them is, as they read this text, does the serpent ever lie? And they say, of course. (coughs) Are you sure about that? Does the serpent lie in this story? The serpent says you won't die. Your eyes will open and you'll become like God. Three things will happen. Okay? Keep that in mind as we continue to make our way through this text. The woman saw that the tree was good. Uh, Could we go back here? (laughs) The woman saw that the tree was good. Uh, But the, the construction begins like this. The woman saw Kitov, that good. This The exact same construction as God saw that it was good. That's the exact same Hebrew phrase uh, get, that gets applied to the woman. And so the woman saw that it was good. What did she see? She saw the tree, that it was good for food, um, that it looked delightful in, in, in essence. To, to her eyes, and the, the, the tree seems desirable to make one wise. So she took from the, tr- from the fruit, from its fruit, the tree's fruit, and she ate. And she also gave to the man with her, and he ate. Uh, at this point, we're, we're told by the narrator that, that Adam was right there. He was with her, and uh, so she hands the fruit over, and he also eats. Often, uh, we picture this story as if Adam was missing from the scene, um, but the, uh, the narrator wants to make sure that we know that he was right there. Uh, it wasn't as if she had to do some convincing otherwise. Now look at verse 7. Their eyes, both of their eyes, both of them, were opened. Isn't this exactly what the serpent said? That their eyes would be opened? This is the narrator speaking. This isn't the serpent speaking. The author says, and then their eyes, both of them, were opened. And they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves and made made for themselves a covering or a loincloth of some kind. The first time, this is the fir- first occurrence of somebody making something other than God. God has been making things, and so the human act of making something for the first time is in response to disobedience to God, to cover our shame for their shame, so they make um, and this should go back to uh, the end of chapter 2 when, when the author made sure that we, we, uh, we heard this phrase that they were both naked, uh, both of them. Uh, that phrase occurs there too. Two of them, Shenahem. Bo- both of them were naked. Uh, his, the man, Adam, and his wife, and they were not ashamed was the end of chapter 2. Then this time they recognize that they're naked and they now make clothing and they put, a bu- put, put that on themselves. Then verse eight begins kind of a new new unit there, and then th- they heard the voice of God or the sound of God, Elo- Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, uh, walking about in the garden in the in the breeze of the day. I, I mentioned this a couple of times before. Uh, God is very very human in chapter two and three. God likes to walk around in the garden when when it's nice and breezy outside, the cool. Uh, so if you're if the, the original text, obviously, is written by and to uh, Jewish people living in the Middle East, right, in that part of the world. So a nice, cool breeze uh, in a very hot climate would have been nice. So God is here depicted walking around in the breeze of the day. So the man, uh, Adam, and uh, his wife, his woman, um, hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, uh, in the middle of the trees of the garden. And the Lord God uh, cried out to the man, to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? Uh, (coughs) Here I don't think Not that I'm opposed to the idea that God here doesn't seem to know where Adam is. I'm not opposed to that idea, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Because God is so humanly depicted in this story, I'm not opposed to that idea that God is actually just kind of wondering where where Adam is because he's walking around and doesn't see Adam. I'm not opposed to that. But I don't think that's what's going on because the response of Adam is not here I am, but it's why he's hiding. So I think the question is rhetorical. In other words, where are you is more why are you hiding? In verse 10 uh, begins, and he said, your, your voice or your sound I heard in the garden and I was afraid and I feared. For naked I am Where I was. It just says naked eye. Hid. There's rich theology here. Um, If God is seeking Adam, where are you? God is walking around looking for Adam, Adam is hiding. And, 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 and referring back to the idea of relationality of God. God wants to have a relationship with us. But when we disobey, what we want to do is move away and hide. And you can't have a relationship with somebody who wants to hide from you. Uh, this is rich in theology and what it might mean for us uh, when we disobey God. Um, <coughs> then he said, who told you? Uh, that you were naked. Again, I think this is kind of rhetorical. And then the next sentence emphasizes the, the tree. Uh, the question mark begins in the beginning of Hebrew. It's an interrogative. Hey, ha, question. I have a question. This is a marking of a sentence. From the tree which I've commanded you not to eat, from it did you eat? That's the, that's the order. So... Again, God would know well, that's what's happened. And his response, uh, again, again uh, the Adam's response, says something about the question. I think, again, it's rhetorical. So the, the man, Adam, uh, said, the woman, <laughs> the woman, the Isha, which you gave to me to be with me, she. There are a couple of emphatic points here. In Hebrew, the word, uh, the woman comes first, that's a verb, and then he, she, uh, she is the uh, independent pronoun there, and Hebrew does not require an independent pronoun, because verbs have pronouns built into them, and so a couple of times, he's really emphasizing, the woman, she, gave to me from the tree, so I ate, and I ate. Um, I mentioned this before a couple I think last week or the week before, that uh, when man was alone it was Lotov, not good. So everything God created was Tov. Good, good, good. Uh, when God created us, it was Tov Ma'od, very good. And then the first situation in chapter two, when, when Adam is alone, not good is the situation. Into that not good situation, God gives Ezer a helper. Uh, help in times of need—that kind of word, help—and so there is an idea that that she's there as a resource to help, and not in, and not as an assistant, but someone who has the resources to help. So the serpent goes to to, uh, to Eve because she's kind of in charge. She's the help. She's the help. Her. She's so. And then so when he he receives the fruit from her, he eats. And look at the response of God there. Um, he doesn't respond to Adam and say you should have done that. Why'd you do that? No, he turned. God turns to, to Eve, to the woman. So yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Um, the Lord God said to the woman, and then here are three words in Hebrew. Uh, I, ma what? Zot this. Asit. Uh, Mazot asita is the phrase in Jonah. Asita is the masculine ending. Asit is the feminine ending. So, literally, what is this you've done? Every time in the Bible, these three words occur rhetorically. Uh, So, whenever this phrase, what is this you've done, occurs, that phrase includes this idea. You know better. And you shouldn't have done it. So when, uh, when Abraham says to his sister, half-sister, and his wife, Sarai, uh, we're going into Egypt because there's famine in the land. Can you say you're my sister? Half-truth, right? So that they won't kill me to get to you, and that also, that it might go well with me, is what he actually says uh, in, in Genesis 12. That means I might benefit from this. That's what that means. So she goes along with it. So she says, Yeah, I'm his sister. Pharaoh of, of Egypt takes her then, because she was a beautiful woman. And when uh, sh- she's taken, God is gracious enough to intervene here and strikes the Pharaoh's house. And, and the Pharaoh learns that this woman was not just his sister, but it was uh, also his wife. And so the Pharaoh says to Abraham, Ma zot asita. What is this you've done? Um, that same phrase occurs. I mentioned again in Jonah when the sailors discover what Jonah had done. Uh, what is this you've done? Ma zot asita. In philosophical terms, we talk about moral agency. Moral agency means you have in yourself the power to choose right from wrong. Which means, having moral agency means we also bear the blame when we do the wrong thing, and we deserve the credit when we do the right thing. So, let's say a a uh, two-year-old, she's just learning to walk around, and she knocks over a vase by accident. Doesn't even know what a vase is, it would break. And, And so she's playing with it, and she knocks it over, and it breaks we would not punish that two-year-old, would we? Now, if my 14-year-old boy was playing around with a vase and dropped it, I would talk to him. There may be consequences. He may be losing his iPhone for a while. Why? Because he now has the moral agency that he lacked when he was younger. He should know better that vases are fragile. Vases? Do you say vases or vase? Uh, that he shouldn't be playing with it. So, you shouldn't have done that because you know better, is this question. Uh, the, the closest English equivalent might be something like this. How could you have done this? Or add the phrase, possibly. How could you have possibly have done this? has a rhetorical flair, I think, that this phrase has. Ma zot asita. In this case, ma zot asit, in the feminine. In other words, the woman had moral agency. She knew better, and she shouldn't have done it. And so she says, um, the woman says, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. So the woman gave to me, and I ate. The woman says, the serpent, gave, serpent tricked me, and I ate. Now, to, to what degree did the serpent trick her? We don't know here again. Does the serpent actually lie? We saw one, one truth. Their eyes were opened. Narrator says that the serpent said that. So one check if, you're, if you've got three things that serpent says, you can check one thing is true. Then the Lord said, uh, Lord God said uh, to the serpent. So this is the beginning of the curse sequence, and it's in in, and in Hebrew. You can see um, see on the left side, it's all like filled in on my page. It's all filled in, but then on the, this uh, this side, there's spacing, uh, blank space it's because it's formatted as poetry right here, whereas this is narrative, so it's, it's completely, I don't know how, how your versions are rendering this, but this is poetry. So God speaks these curses in very poetic form. Um, <coughs> so he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you. Next line of the poetry. Uh, Among all The animals and uh, among all the living things of the field. So more than any other thing are you cursed. Upon your um, belly you will walk. So you will crawl upon your belly. And dust you will eat. All the days of your life. Enmity I will put. Between uh, the woman and your seed, offspring, right? Uh, between you and the woman, and between the offspring, your offspring and her—actually, her, your offspring and her offspring. Literally, it says seed. So. Uh, So between you and her, and between... So in other words, not only between you and this woman, but from now on, all your descendants, there will be enmity between the two of them, continuously. He, meaning the the seed of the woman, or the descendants or offsprings of the woman, will bruise head. We would have to supply something like your head or their head. It just says, will bruise head. And uh, you will bruise, heal. Uh, this verse is sometimes known as the Proto-Evangelion, or Proto-Evangelion, a uh, Proto-Evangelism, so Proto-Gospel. Sometimes it's called the Proto-Gospel uh, because it seems to suggest something about human history um, if the serpent here represents Satan, the cosmic battle between Satan and humanity. And the seed of the woman often is referred to as, uh, thought of as Jesus. So Jesus is the seed of the woman who bruises the head of the Satan, Satan. Uh, and of course, this, then Satan will bruise the heel of this man. And so there's this cosmic battle that happens between, t- between uh, good and evil and the seed of the woman is Jesus and seed of the serpent and, or the serpent itself. Uh, and in Revelation it talks about the serpent of old in comparing to, in describing Satan. So it's possible, of course, Revelation is poetry too, but it refers to the, the serpent of old as a reference to Satan, so it's possible. It's also possible that this curse is about snakes. In the, mid- in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East, snakes were frightening creatures. If they bit you in the heel, you had a good chance of dying. Uh, and so... This could simply refer to the enmity or the hatred that people have towards snakes. Now, I know today lots of people keep snakes as pets, uh, but that's still outside the norm. Most people don't like snakes, especially poisonous ones. So it could be just reference to that, that they're looking around uh, and explaining the ideology, the story, the beginning of this enmity that people have towards snakes. It could be that, too. So there's debate about whether Th- Genesis 3.15 really is a proto-evangelion, or it's just a reference to our hatred of snakes, uh, especially in the Middle East at the time. To the woman, he said, um, I will multiply and multiply. I will greatly multiply, or I will make great your... Um, labor in, in pregnancy. Um, of course, this is a reference to painful childbearing. Uh, so in pain, or in suffering, or in toil, you will bear children. And then, so, do you remember the blessing? God blessed him and see, and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That multiply, that word, is right here. So now, that process of multiplying is going to hurt. So the curses are are really, in in essence, hindrances to the blessings of God. Here's another curse uh, that continues. Your desire will be for your husband. But, Ooh, that's a scary but right there. But he will rule over you. So, Genesis, at the end of chapter 2, I talked about how their innocence represented two different things. One, innocence, and two, intimacy. They were naked and they were unashamed, which means they're like children who don't know any better because they're innocent and nakedness doesn't embarrass them or shame them. Uh, also talked about really, because there were were already husband and wife, one flesh, which means there's sexual activity there, and there was genuine intimacy there, true intimacy, without any shame. And this curse is now a hindrance to that. You will desire a husband, but he's going to rule over you. Now, much of human history is patriarchal, domineering, powerful oppression of women by men. So this, this curse it, you can just look at history and say oh yeah that's very human. 17 continues the curse to the man to the Adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife your woman and you ate from the tree which i commanded you not to eat from so which uh, I have commanded you uh, saying to not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain or toil or suffering, that's the same word get that gets used by, uh, earlier for the woman's labor. In pain, you will eat all the days of your life. Yes, question. Um,
0: I think it was last week that you said that the verse that said that uh, the woman was a helper mm-hmm. was not to be used to suggest that <coughs> Now, uh, this verse 16 here, mm-hmm. now is that flipped to this? Uh,
1: oh, verse 16, yes. With, uh, the man will rule over you. Yeah, him. yeah. Um, so, as I said, the, the curses are hindrances to blessings. Or, or some people, theologically, it might even be uh, reversals of blessings. So be fruitful and multiply. Now it's going to hurt. Uh, There's true intimacy. And if, (laughs) this is a big if, okay? I'm not suggesting, by the way, that somehow in this world of the story that the Isha, the woman, was created as a superior being, as a superior human being to Adam. Because the story uh, unfolds, she was taken literally from Adam's side to say that they are the same. Genesis 1 says Adam was made in the image of God, male and female. Chapter 2 says they're made of the same material. So I'm not actually saying that women are superior. So I'm not like a militant feminist who would say women are superior to men. I think we're equals and we should always be treated equally and treat each other equally. Uh, We're not the same. We're not identical to each other. But we're equal in standing before God. And so, but there is a sense in in chapter 2 that Adam needed someone to help him, right? So he was the one in need she is the one providing that need providing for that need and in chapter this curse starts to reverse that you were supposed to be his azair; now he's going to mashal rule over you domineer over you uh, and so it is a reversal of, of, a, of a blessing all the curses are reversal of blessings in a sense
0: Is that, what we are, is that our lesson from this? Um, very good
1: question. Because here's, here's the thing. What did Jesus come to do? To not to abolish the law, or to end humanity, to end the world. Uh, but what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, and the resurrection, and the teachings of Paul when you see it. Uh, in a sense... We don't, okay, so redemption. I like the word redemption because restoration, you can restore a vehicle like a 1968 Mustang. If you restore a vehicle, you're trying to make it like it was new. When you redeem something, you don't necessarily want to go back to that exact same thing, but you're making it even better. So let me go back to the curses uh, and, and how Jesus relates. You may freely eat of anything in this garden. Just eat, feast. The curse Now, it will be hard. In toil, in pain, you will eat all the days of your life. So I garden. Gardening, just to grow some vegetables, it's a lot of work. Now imagine, without machinery, farming in an ancient world to grow food in a very dry climate. It would have been backbreaking, and you will eat by the sweat of your brow, literally your nose there. It says, when you sweat and you're working, the sweat drifts down to your nose. Have you ever had that experience? That, it says sweat of your brow, but it means like your nose area. Uh, in fact, it's the same area that God breathes life into, Adam. And so God breathed life into this man through this area, the nose, nostrils, and by the sweat of your nose, you will eat. So the curse is this reversal of this blessing. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread will never be hungry. It isn't going back to the Garden of Eden, but it's even better. Think about the curse of be fruitful, multiply, becoming a curse. Now it's going to to hurt. There's There's a hindrance. And Jesus says, you know what? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be with you. Multiplication now happens without pain, without that. It's beyond just biological multiplication now; it's spiritual multiplication. Right? The curse between the man and the woman, the innocence lost, and the and the intimacy lost. When you read Ephesians again, go back and read the beginning of Ephesians 5, not just the parts where it says wives submit to your husband, right before that verse it says, for fear of Christ submit you, all of you, you all, it's a plural there, to one another. And then it says wives to husbands. But the word submit is not even in that verse. You have to borrow it from the verse above it that says submit, wives submit to your husbands. Because it's mutual submission. and and Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? Read Ephesians 2. I'm sorry, Philippians 2. It shows you literally how Christ loved the church. That he gave himself up for her, becoming a servant. Becoming nothing to serve. So it's mutual submission. So the curse of now he's going to rule over you and there's going to be pains of intimacy that you're going to have to overcome. In Christ, there's now mutual submission which also then is, reverses that curse again. So all of the blessings of pre-fall uh, that become cursed, Jesus redeems. Not in the same way, not to go backwards, but to go forwards in an in a interesting new way. New ways to multiply and be fruitful. New ways to be full. New ways to be intimate uh, with one another. Those are powerful ways. As I said earlier, I wanted to talk about Jesus. It's in Jesus Christ that we find the reversal beginning, and it will be fully accomplished in the consummation. Yes. In the world of the story, it's a snake. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. in terms of, oh, we could be saved a lot of... Oh, sure. ...without Satan constantly being... Sure. Uh, Satan, I don't know there are other stories where there's this direct interaction mm-hmm. between Satan
1: and God. Yeah, Job 1 begins with a dialogue between Satan and God, and then there it's, it's actually called Satan, uh, the, so he's named. Well, it's, actually, it's a title. Satan means adversary and it has the Hebrew article The Ha in front of it. The Satan comes before. So it's not like a proper name, but a title he's given, The Adversary. So The Adversary comes to to God, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? So there interactions. But that raises a question that I just... Um, you all know linda leon um, she's the the director of spiritual formation at malone university and she does amazing things with students and one of the things that we do is a panel discussion once a semester or twice a semester with people like me so we have one bible uh, one new testament one old testament one theologian usually or ministry person sitting there in a panel of three and students have written questions to us and we cover a theme last theme was about suffering and evil and one of the questions was, why, di- why doesn't God just get rid of evil if God is all-powerful? Why doesn't God just remove suffering and just, boom, done? <laughs> my response was, if God had removed evil from the beginning, just like, boom, God would have to ri- get rid of us as well. Because we're the first perpetrators of evil. Would you say that again? If God were to get rid of evil with a wand or just a, just a decree, a fiat, like a let there be light kind of decree and God wanted to get rid of evil, God would have, would have had to gotten rid of us, the humanity, because we're the first perpetrators of evil. If evil is a rejection against God's, ob- God's message, God says, don't do this, and we do it, and if that's the definition of sin or evil, then we are initially responsible for this. he sure. Right. so couldn't he just to go off of yeah. you know, the judge's question, couldn't he have just said, okay, sure. no, no Satan, I'm mm-hmm. getting rid of you, Satan, but yeah. I'm going to go ahead and create people. Right. Um. There's, there's a, okay, so there's a whole um. we don't know a whole lot about that. I, I took a course in seminary a few uh, decades ago and uh, one part of that course was angelology and demonology. And I thought, that's going to be really fun and interesting. Uh, the theologian spent about half a class period <laughs> on that portion uh, because um, he said, you know, if we're going to be biblical about this and not extra biblical, so we don't in- import ideas from outside, there are some passages in the Bible, for example, in Isaiah, uh, that talks about, you know, the the star falling. Uh, The the morning uh, star falling and and that kind of that's where we get the word Lucifer from, right? So uh, the light and uh, when you look at those passages in context, it's talking about the king of Babylon, for example. So there's if you are going to remain just inside the Bible, we virtually we know virtually nothing about angels and demons. Uh, so a lot of the ideas that we have about the f- the, f- the fall of angels, or those, um, have to be interpreted uh, in in ways that kind of reach beyond the text, and 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 kind of cohesively bring those theologies together. So yes, the, the traditional idea that that uh, the, the, the Satan would have been you know the first to fall, and then so then the serpent was an instrument of the Satan, or was the Satan was Satan himself. Uh, tempting humanity uh, into sinning, Uh, then, again, you'd have to read into this text something that's not there. This is an animal that's talking. In fact, God says, cursed are you among all the animals of the field. So then we have to ignore those kinds of things in the text to say, this is Satan. Um, It's a snake. It's a talking snake in this story. In the world of the story, now, what does this mean ontologically, in reality, we don't know. But in the world of the story, we have, talki- we have a talking snake who so far has not told a lie. Right? He says three things. You will not die, you- your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. We've already seen that their eyes are open. So one check. Any other qu- uh, questions? Are, these are great questions, by the way. Okay, so the cur- we didn't finish reading the curse. Um, so, uh, although I did talk about it. So he's, he's going to sweat and eat from, this is, so it's a curse. And then verse 18 says, uh, thorns and thistles I will cause to, to sprout to you, for you. And uh, you will eat the green things of the field. And by, the, by uh, the sweat of your nose, the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. Until and here is uh, it, because it says until this is this is a difficulty for us until you return to the ground the adamah remember he, he's called adam because he was made from adamah until you return to the ground for from it <coughs> uh, from it you were taken for dust you are to dust you shall return so. I've, heard, I've been to many funerals, and often this line gets uh, cited, and sometimes I wonder if priests and pastors know that this was part of a curse, not some kind of a blessing that you can say. Uh, this is not a good thing that we're returning to dust, right? This is part of a curse. But The hope in Christ is that we won't remain dust, that we will uh, be restored, then um, Adam, then the man called the name of the woman. Remember he had called her, he said, she shall be called, this. she, this woman, this person, shall be called Isha, woman, because she came out of Ish. Ish and Isha, the playfulness of the Hebrew there. That, at that point, he didn't name her. He actually just said, she will be called this, Isha. The phrase here is literally to name someone or something. There's a sense of dominion already. There's already a sense of, and he shall rule over you idea, being exercised here. Now, he names her. He names this woman, Chava. I don't actually know how we got to Eve from Chava, (laughs) Uh, but apparently it somehow w- went through changes and and became Eve uh, Eve is supposed to sound like Chava I think I don't know I, I should look that up at some point but the Hebrew word here is Chava which again is ha- Chava is a playful thing with Chai Chai is life so she shall be called Chava for she is uh, the mother of all Chai life so just as Ish and Isha was playful, Chai and Chua is playful. Wordplay. She shall be called Chua, Eve, because she comes. She's the mother of all life. Then, verse twenty-one. Um, <clears throat> twenty-one describes an act that I used to read before when I, was, before I uh, studied the Hebrew text, or just read, read things more slowly in the Bible. Learning Hebrew, one thing it did for me is that it forced me to read more slowly, because uh, I can read English fairly fast, but Hebrew, I still have to work slow, and it slows me down. And so this, when I read this verse slowly, it struck me. And then Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, Asa, yah, uh, made. For Adam and his wife, clothing, made of skin, and he clothed them, he dressed them. Just one, if you just, for my Bible, if you just flip one page over, this God was speaking the universe into existence. Let light be, right? Right? This guy is making clothing. He's now a garment maker. <laughs> the, the condescension of God, and, and, and we tend to use the word condescension negatively, but theologians don't. It means condescend, so to go down, to be at the same level as the other person. So when I'm talking to a little kid, and I, and I crouch down, and I talk to a little kid this way, it is not condescension in the negative sense, right? I'm not condescending, but I'm descending to their level so we can see eye to eye, and so we can have a fun conversation or something. When my son and I, when he was younger, and we used to play little cars, and we would get on the ground, and I was, it wasn't really entertaining for me, uh, but it was entertaining just because I loved the kid, and he had a great time making the cars talk, and fight, and have sheriffs, and bad cars, and good cars, and, uh, but... When I got to his level, that's called condescension in just the basic meaning of that word. And so we talk about divine condescension, God becoming human. Incarnation of Christ is a form of condescension. God going, hey, I want to talk to you. I can't talk to you while I'm I'm transcendent, so let me become imminent with you. And so that's the idea. And here it is. They sewed fig leaves together to make clothing. Of course, that's not going to last, is it? So God, knowing this in, in this in this story, God has to expel these people from the garden. The protection of the garden, they'll be out, in, exposed to the elements. So what does God do? Provide clothing for this first human couple. So when my students say, "Hey, God of the New Testament is gracious, and the God of the Old Testament is vindictive and judgmental," I'm like, "Did you actually read the book of the Old Testament? The books of the Old Testament?" The first act of God after our sin is not punishment, but provision. God provides for this couple. To the point of condescension that I can't understand, the the universe creating God, just a few, really few lines before this. God speaks and the universe comes into existence. God makes garments. So I say this in my theology classes. Grace doesn't begin with a cross, Grace begins in Genesis 3, immediately following the fall story. Grace is built into this. In fact, the New Testament God is a little scarier than the Old Testament God, in my mind. In the Old Testament God, God says Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Does he sacrifice Isaac? No, God says no. I will provide the, he actually, Abraham says he will provide the ram. And it does, he does, right? Abraham never has to kill Isaac. The New Testament God is scarier. This New Testament God kills his own son painfully. That's a scary God. So when we say New Testament is about grace and Old Testament is about law and judgment, I think we're misunderstanding God. Uh, Right from the beginning we see uh, God providing for them. Just blows my mind sometimes when I think about that story. How did the Israelites picture this God walking around and making clothing for them? so that they um, will be protected from the elements. And then the last word there, uh, and he dressed them. (laughs) Uh, This is in the hifl in the Hebrew. um, It means cause, it's causative. The verbs can have regular meaning, like active meaning, it can be passive. It It can be causative. Here, it's almost the idea of when my son was too young to dress himself, I dressed him. This is what God does with the clothing. And God said, God, uh, Yahweh Elohim, uh, the Lord God said, look, the man, the Adam, uh, has, become, have, has become like one of us. When good and evil. Check number two from serp- serpent. You will become like God. So two out of three so far, the serpent has not lied. Now lest they stretch out He stretches out his hand And take also from the tree of life uh, And eat And uh, will live forever And there's kind of an ellipsis Because these are the words of God Lest he does this And then ellipse dot 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 And the next next verse The narrator takes over Uh, So Yahweh Elohim The Lord God uh, Sent out from the Garden of Eden Sent them out Him out And uh, to work, to serve, to toil, to labor, uh, the the land, the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he put, uh, established, set uh, in the east of, east to the Garden of Eden, a Kerovim. Kerovim. Cherubim, cherubim, uh, cherubim, im is a Hebrew Hebrew plural ending, a cherub, cherub is uh, uh, the same word, just transliterated the sound of cherub here, some sort of angelic being, uh, and a flaming sword, uh, and this is, all of this is to guard and to, to protect the path or the road to the tree of life. So now that he has uh, become like God, if he eats of this fruit, God worries he'll be exactly like us. He's kind of like one of us now already. But if he can if he can live forever, then that's a done deal. What does that suggest about the serpent's third idea that you will not die from eating this fruit? If if Adam had just been smart enough to go after eating this fruit, walked over to the other tree and eaten the fruit of life, he would have never died, let alone die that day. Because God had said, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. He ate. He didn't die. Not Not for hundreds of years in the story. And if he had eaten that other fruit he would have lived forever in the, in the world of this story. He would have been eternally existent, like God. And so in order to prevent that, God prevent, uh, stations a cherub, an angelic being, and a flaming sword to protect the way to the tree of life. So three for three, the serpent does not lie. And this is where my students get nervous. Like, but we've been told. Well, you, you've been reading into the text. Read it again. Just let the text talk to you instead of us trying to interpret the text with all the preconceived notions. All three things the serpent says is actually true.
0: Is the tree of life heaven?
1: I don't know. What does it symbolize? We don't know. What does the tree of knowledge of good and evil represent? Uh, uh, disobedience or something good? And and some of my students ask me, isn't knowledge of good and evil a good thing? Why wouldn't God want us to have that? And uh, I think someone asked me this last time after our, our time, our, our class, and my response was, I think God would have given it to us. Just not right there and then. Little kids, right? Um, and you don't, you don't have to tell little kids everything, all at once. In fact, if you do, they don't understand it. So right and wrong, good and evil, comes over time. And maybe they just weren't ready for it yet. We don't know. In the world of that story, we don't know. But um, there was an interesting article I read a few years ago, um, an essay, um, that just kind of blew my mind. And I haven't quite uh, processed it all yet. So... The this, this scholar was was raised when he was a child. And he's Japanese American, uh, New Testament, Old Testament scholar, uh, and uh, he was raised in during during the Japanese internment camps. Um, so he was actually a little child playing in the in the camps. His parents, of course, and the the older people were miserable, uh, but he talks about how children were fine. They were innocent. There were all his, all his cousins and family and everybody was there. They felt safe. They played. Um, so unlike the concentration camps of, of Germany, the internment camps uh, were not in and of itself brutal against the people there. It was an internment camp. Yes, that was a horrible time in our history. But at the same time, the kids were okay. They, they, he felt fine. So, he likened, this is, this is where I cannot quite get there yet, he likened the Garden of Eden to that event. That uh, Adam and Eve was in the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Eden was not a good place to be, if you're an adult. If you're a child, it's a great place to be. If you're innocent, it's a good place to be. But remember, the command was to fill the earth. Eventually, people would have had to leave the garden. When? when you're mature enough to leave it. So this paradise-like garden that we think of as the perfect place, he says, no, it's perfect for kids. I used to have a, I don't know what you call it, a playpen, little things that you you can put like in a box basically to lock in a kid (laughs) inside and put all the toys inside it. And when my son had just learned to crawl and move around the house, and I didn't want him to touch things, so we created a large playpen and put it in that living room, and all of his toys and stuff, safe things, were in there. And yet, if you put me in there and told me I couldn't leave, I would be very unhappy. He was perfectly happy in that place. So this Japanese-American scholar said, yeah, the internment camp, that experience as a child, terrible place if you're an adult great place if you 're a kid it 's a place of innocence, a place actually that had protections for kids and um, that just I still haven 't quite gotten there. can into the Garden of Eden is not a paradise because uh, that 's kind of how I was taught also and so I had to really think about what it meant then that what does that, fru- that fruit represent in the story symbolically does it represent then something maturity that they weren 't ready for, and now they have to leave anyway because um, they, can't, they won't be happy in the garden anyway. So, I don't know about that yet. I haven't quite gotten there <laughs> to say, oh, yeah, of course, garden would have been a terrible place for adults if once you matured. I, I don't want to say that yet. But it was intriguing to think about it that way, isn't it? Yeah, Christ
0: calls us as children.
1: Yes. Yeah. And there's a maturation process that Paul talks about. The Christians have to go through a maturation process. And, uh, Uh, To to, to get a little theological here, I I don't know if we ever end maturing and growing, ever, from now until ever, Uh, because we won't immediately be like God, we're becoming like Christ, and I think that cruciform, becoming like Christ, will happen forever, forever. Well, Christ is God, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. There
0: seems that in that analogy there has to be a distinction. Sure. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, we're, we have a minute, literally. <laughs> so we made it through all three chapters of Genesis. Yes. Thank you. But if I can leave you with one final thought. Is that when you when you and I read the text? Because uh, uh, I the reason I study the Bible is bec- not because it's just an interesting ex- artifact of human history, but because I believe this is God's word for the church. Um, so sometimes I get called liberal, which surprises me sometimes because I hold to very very kind of fuddy duddy conservative ideas like this is the word of God and then we should live by it and then we should uh, that God listens to our prayers and and I'm very orthodox. So when people ask call me liberal, I get surprised. Uh, but in, in pursuit of our, of our Bible, when we say, hey, go read your Bible, I sometimes say it to my son, go read your Bible. I think sometimes we do a disservice if we don't study together as a community. And this is a wonderful thing that you are all doing because the Bible wasn't given to me or to Dan or anybody else individually, it was given to the community, the church. And so when we talk about it, even if we disagree, Uh, we can still openly and and kindly speak to one another. I think that dialogue is where truth comes out, Uh, and not just in a single person, but in conversation. So if I said something that you think, huh, I I don't know if I agree with that, that's great, that's okay, Uh, as long as we can all still continue the conversation together as brothers and sisters in Christ bought by the blood. And we all, by the way, wear the same garments that the Lord Christ has made for us that covers all of our sins so we don't have to hide anymore. Thank you very much.